0: Hey everybody, happy new year and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. We are recording from a distance today for the first time in 2022, which is kind of hard to believe. It seems like we should be getting ready for 2020 right now, not 2022. And uh, even as I was watching the uh, different New Year celebrations this year, I think there's a common sense that it's hard to measure time over the last couple of years. It can seem like anywhere from three weeks ago to three years ago with COVID and everything else. It's been hard to mark history lately, but uh, it's exciting to mark a new year. And I, I think you probably have thought about this too. When you teach, you're always thinking about these markers, New Year's, Christmas, everything that's coming, in right. and how you orient your lessons. I'm not much of a New Year's resolutions person, but I am a big goal person. Are
1: you a resolutions person? No, I, I am not. I used to do that. And I listened to your sermon, by the way, from Carlton Landing. And you made uh, you gave the statistics on how many people fail to meet them. And you even gave a date, I think, on how quickly Americans uh, fail to meet them. And I found that to be true. I do goals. Same as you. I have set a few personal and professional, but I think we're talking personal. I have set three personal goals to guide me through this year. I hope to achieve more than that, but that's my compass for mm-hmm. where I'd like to head. And I think goals seem to work better than a resolution for me.
0: Yeah, I think I think so too. Uh, I'm always inspired by people who are good resolution makers and keepers. Of course, Jonathan Edwards is a very famous resolution maker he would set down these life resolutions and then evaluate them on a weekly basis i have trouble with that kind of follow through if we're being honest i just i don't have the stick to itness i'm better at a short to medium term goal that might get me to a longer term goal
1: well people that and I used to operate this way. It's the way my business was, the way my life went. When you operate day-to-day with checklists and, and that kind of thing, and you get into that, and some people resonate with it, I really think those kinds of things work better. For where I'm at in my stage of life and stage of business, I've kind of taken a key from, this isn't new with the book, Atomic Habits. It was around long before that, but the idea is Not so much uh, specific behaviors, but processes. And so, if you look at my three goals this year, they all have to do with instituting processes or life practices that Mm -hmm. will yield certain results. And again, I'm not knocking either way of doing it, but mine have more to do with, uh, as Aristotle said, habits. I think Mm -hmm. he was famous for talking about you're basically the accumulation of your habits. Yes.
0: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good outlook on how to make lasting change, right? That's why most resolutions fail is because they don't actually the person is no different, you can grit your teeth and do something different for a little while but a habit is the kind of thing that you actually begin to change. I think that's the way that you really do change over time is by developing habits Mm -hmm. and a lifestyle that's sustainable. Um, one of one other thing before we get into our best books, uh, which this is one of my favorite episodes we do each year, we should almost do them more often, but will we save it for the end or the beginning of the year? Um, I just wanted to comment and thank everybody who listens for a great end of the year at So We Speak in terms of our fundraising, in terms of uh, the goals that we've set to do the things we want to do in this upcoming year. We are so thankful for everyone who has given throughout the year. We've got a lot of monthly givers, but we also have people that gave kind of above and beyond at the end of the year. And we are very thankful for that. And, um, even surprised a little bit, honestly, by such a generous outpouring. And I, I just take that to mean that people's lives are being impacted by what we're doing, both the podcast, the website, the writers, we have the weekly speak, everything we're doing is geared to equip people to live their daily lives, thinking Christianly, being informed, not being conformed, and the heartbeat of reaching other people through conversation, through writing, through speaking for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also in discipleship and mentoring and Bible studies. And so we are an equipping ministry. We are working to provide content and life change to people. And I think that's working. And so I'm thankful to God for that. And I'm also thankful to everybody, the thousands of people that participate in some way or another with So We Speak.
1: Absolutely. And I would second that. I, it's a vote of confidence in some way that uh, God is able to use this to do what he wants to do in the lives of a lot of people. A lot of people that we don't know, a lot of people that we'll never see. But the Holy Spirit is using that.
0: Well, let's get to the main course here, which is the best books of the year. And I've been publishing my best books over uh, two installments now and of uh, five. And part of that is just to get the opportunity to group these books together And to talk about the different areas of of reading. And I think it was a couple of months ago in one of the posts that I did, I was talking about reading stacks of books, taking a topic, finding a few books that hit that topic from different angles and directions and working through things that way. And I know that's kind of the way that you've read as well. Mm-hmm. That's, been a, that's been kind of a new thing for me in the last year is to not try to move so rapidly through a big breadth of books, but to try and dig down into um, some specific topics, some commonalities. Of course, in my first post, one of the things I commented on was forsaking some of the new books this year to return to some old favorites. And uh, that was in the form of reading commentaries, reading books to become a better preacher that your reading sometimes follows the function of what it is that you're doing it follows the season of your life so if you had to reflect on your reading in 2021 with kind of a broad overview what characterized your reading in the last year
1: a great question i've noticed from your Uh, blog entry that you've already put out on this, it's been a little different than yours. Of course, we read commentaries and that sort of thing, but I don't ever write that down. You've read some of those all the way through. I tend to use them as reference, so I never count that. I'll tell you one thing that surprised me is I tend to jot down as best I can do it. I'm sure I leave a bunch of them out. How many books I read during the year, I was down 20% last year. I read 20% fewer books last year, assuming I wrote them all down, which is a big assumption. But that surprised me. However, I read more tightly clustered books. Mm -hmm. I just got interested. This is outside work type reading, series type research. I just got really interested in a couple of big areas and cluster read those things. And I'm not sure it's ever going to be useful. It'll ever show up in a lesson, but it does broaden our minds. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd say characteristic of mine last year, here are three big areas. I got really interested in personal diaries throughout history. And I read a lot of diaries. I read a number of biographies, which I usually do. And then I got really interested in the year on the Psalms. And I'm not sure why, but I read a number of books. And I have a couple that I would recommend on the Psalms. So that's pretty eclectic. It's like, why? I don't know why. I just got interested in one book led to another and led to another. So my reading, I, I guess it was, uh, I don't even know if that's very interesting, but I'd say that characterized it was personal experiences and biographies and then a deep dive into the Psalms.
0: Well, that is really interesting. And and some years we have a lot of overlap and some years we don't. And uh, this year, I don't think we have as much overlap in our list because we've been taken to different places and uh, different interests by our reading, but I think that'll make our recommendations even better. So give us your book of the year pick or your top tier of books that you read this year that you'd recommend.
1: Well, I know that we share one, because I I know what your top uh, book is, is the rise and triumph of the modern self by Carl Truman I was very affected by that book. That book is very hard to wade through, but I found it to be, it crystallized a lot of thinking for me. How about you?
0: Yeah, that was my pick of the year, just in terms of the most impactful book was the rise and triumph of the modern self, which I think it came out at the very end of 2020, but I didn't read it until 2021 or at Mm -hmm. least I didn't finish it until 2021. And I thought it was important for a couple of different reasons. I think one, it has huge explanatory value in terms of where we are, what's happening in our culture, and how we got here. But secondly, I think there's a proactive step attached to that, which is once you understand why we got here, then you start to be able to piece through what it is we should be doing and how we should be responding. and, and so I there's a couple of quotes in here that I thought were really helpful. The, the book is premised around this little thought experiment that Truman does, which is to say, what if your grandparents or your great grandparents were teleported here and they heard someone say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body? They would have no, not only would they not have an idea uh, as to what that means, they wouldn't even have a framework to talk about what that means. And because that's the case, we know that we have been through a colossal transition uh, in Western civilization. We've redefined fundamental categories, we think differently, we signify things differently, we express ourselves differently. And so the, the first part of the book is basically to say, what would need to change from 100 years ago to now for that statement to be a commonplace in America? And I think maybe the most significant thing that he covers in the book, both from a societal and from a religious perspective, is this diagnosis of our culture drifting towards an emotive or a therapeutic, uh, feeling-based ethic. And so in one of the opening chapters, he talks about the therapeutic culture and the culture of a psychological man. Which I think these these are both uh, really important concepts in the book, and and basically what that means, and I'm quoting him here on page seventy nine, the only moral criterion that can be applied to behavior is whether it conduces to the feeling of well being in the individuals concerned. Ethics, therefore, becomes a function of feeling. So this is this is descended from Alistair McIntyre's work. That ethics are not a system of principles anymore. They're a set of moral preferences. And this is why you get such reactionary behavior in our culture today. Like if you say something and it hurts someone's feelings or it makes them feel bad, then you are in the wrong. Well, that is totally backwards from any ethical system that's ever been popular in the Western world. Because usually ethics has something to do with intention. But if you measure ethics by... Reception or reaction, my emotional well-being. Then all of right. a sudden, I get to determine whether your actions are right or wrong. I think that's a huge takeaway from this book. the The other thing I'll say is at the very end, he makes some um, recommendations for how the church should respond to this. And I think one of the difficult, um, one of the really difficult topics in the church right now is not just that the sexual revolution and uh, conversations having to do with race and gender and all that have shifted. They've moved away from a Christian worldview, but the more important question is what should we do about it? And I th- I think on that right. front the church has really not done a very good job. It's certainly not a unified job in articulating what it is we believe and picking the right Hills to die on. Okay. That's, that's part of the problem is we either have no urgency We don't think any of this is really worth uh, dying for or planting a, a flag in the ground. And then on the other hand, some people have lost all sense of proportion and think every hill is worth dying on. And so I think what Truman does is cut through a little bit of that and give some good advice to the church. And one of the ways that he talks about this. Is through aesthetic-based logic, which is which kind of sounds like a scholarly term, and this book is scholarly in a lot of ways. But mm-hmm. basically, we we as a church need to stop thinking that if we will just do things that other people are okay with—non-believers, seekers, even people in our own church—that will end up doing the right thing. That's actually not a good way to make decisions. We need to make decisions based on what we know to be right, and then work on building bridges relationally, culturally, socially with other people. The time has passed and the culture shift is too big to think that if we uh, basically live by kind of common consent and commonality, that we'll actually have anything convictional to say to the world. So we need a recovery of what it is we believe. We need to stop being reactive. And we need to start being proactive and confessional and convictional in the way that we live. So th- those are some of my big takeaways from the book. What were some of yours?
1: No, it was sim- very similar. I think that realization that we are in a feelings-based ethical system, and then the implication of that for me was the inevitability. And this is what I've taught, and this is what I believe, is given that that is the case, Then you will see, sociologically speaking, a rise of tribalism because you're going to clump together around people who feel the same way about their ethical systems, others who don't. You'll see the rise of victimhood culture, which we have seen is I didn't intend to victimize you. It doesn't matter. This is how I took it. Uh, You triggered me. This is not a safe space. Ergo, you have done something morally wrong. So, and that always leads to conflict and eventually violence. And I I may be wrong about that. We'll see how things play out. But as a historian, I don't see any way around that because Mm -hmm. you take away any common frame for conversation or any common ethical frame. Even amongst people who believe that, it's not a matter of old world people who haven't gotten on the new ethical system, it's between people in that ethical system. One person's feelings are hurt because of this and other person's aren't. In other words, it breaks down the commonality of the rational basis for morality. And I think we'll see our society, and I know I sound like a doomsayer, we won't see our society morph, we will see our society deteriorate. Mm-hmm because we are losing the bonds that are holding us together. And I think that's probably one of the more significant changes. Politics don't worry me, political tactics don't worry me, disagreements amongst people who have a similar framework. The Constitution of the US, I mean, as much as you may vilify people on the other side of the aisle, whatever that may be for you, you still have some common framework and some common institutions. This ethical shift. Removes any common institutions or common framework. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest
0: dangers is that we won't actually be able to talk to each other anymore, and um, that kind of sounds hyperbolic. But but I do think that's the trajectory we're on. And so one of the things that Truman does really well is show us how that's happening and why. Give us some of the framework. And I was really encouraged to see that Crossway is actually printing a shorter version of that book. It's a little less technical, and I don't say that to be condescending, I just mean that a lot of people don't have the interest or the time to wade through 400 pages of philosophy. But these concepts are something that everybody is probably going to be interested in. And so there's a new book coming out called Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution by Carl Truman in March from Crossway. And so it is the same substance, but in a little bit different packaging.
1: I would, and I would recommend that. Don't feel bad about reading it. As, as a matter of fact, uh, the same thing happened with Charles Taylor's *A Secular Age*, which was very difficult to get through, but was very important. And I believe James K. A. Smith wrote uh, *How Not to Be Secular*, which was I don't know what 150 pages mm-hmm. paperback book that summarized the ideas. I'm a big fan of that. There's no. I mean, you shouldn't uh, take it as a point of pride that you waded through a long book that you didn't need to wade through. So I think that's a great idea.
0: If we're going to get our reading back up that 20 percent in 2022, we're going to be reading. the Absolutely. I've got to read summaries. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another book on my top, you know, the top of my list is one that we both read. Actually, I read and I think you listened to it, which I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. And that is George the Third, which is by Andrew Roberts. And I've said it before. I put this in my post that released uh, yesterday on nonfiction books. I really am convinced that Andrew Roberts is probably the greatest living biographer. Now you can break that out down into a hundred subcategories. Sure. Of course, there's a lot of great biographers out there. But if you just look at what he's done, he's written New York Times best-selling, comprehensive, award-winning biographies now of George III, Churchill, Napoleon, Lord Halifax. Uh, he's got one on Hitler and Churchill. He's got leadership in, in war. He's a phenomenal author. And this one I thought was actually a little bit different than his two other marquee books, which would be Churchill, Walking with Destiny, and Napoleon, A Life. In the sense that Napoleon probably, his reputation probably needed a little bit of rehab. Churchill probably not. George III seems like an odd pick for somebody who's written on such titans. Number one, a little bit obscure. Number two, not so favorably remembered, especially in America. Why do you think he chose this book?
1: Well, I, I love the title, George III, The Last King of America, which is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why he chose this book, but I'll tell you how, what I took away from it. I understand more deeply The motivations of the American revolutionaries. They're not terribly pure. They're very, very human. And I'm I'm not saying it made me think George, you know, the British were the good guys and the Americans were the bad guys. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's sort of like taking a story you learned in church in fourth grade and then rereading it and reading commentary about it when you're an adult and you just get so much more nuance and texture That's what this book did for me. He did a great job of, in an entertaining way, explaining the factions in America, the factions in Britain, and from personal correspondence. I believe he said that some 200,000 pages, I may get this wrong, were just released relatively recently from George III out of the Queen's own uh, library, basically. And he was able to get to that. He quotes extensively from the letters of George III. I I don't know why he did it, but it certainly rehabilitates George III's image a little bit as not just the black and white bad guy in the situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with what you said. That That's kind of the value that I found in it too. And I'll add two points. The, the first one being what I love about Roberts is what I love about most good biographers, which is if you read their book, you experience the person In their own context. So what Roberts does with George III is he allows you to see him making real time decisions. He gives you enough information about what's going on around George III, both in the world, all the people that he's dealing with in America and Britain. Of course, he has a long reign before and after the American Revolution. Right. But in the midst of that, you get to see him making real decisions analyses and decisions and I think that's what a good biographer does and Roberts does that tremendously well the second thing is he is just so good at wading through mountains of material and even though this is a you know 800 page book pretty much sticks with a laser focus wrapping it all together in a coherent compelling narrative And one of the ways that I think he does that, I I actually had the opportunity to talk to him about this, um, which I still consider one of the best conversations I've ever gotten to have with somebody. So I was talking to him about writing this kind of biography. And one of the things that he said was, when you go to the archives at Windsor Castle, which is where these archives are and where the archives were of um, some, some of the archives that were newly released that he used for the Churchill volume. Is it, number one, you're on high alert all the time because the uh, people there and the soldiers who are watching the place are very suspicious of what what everyone in there is doing, and so you <laughs> you basically are being watched the entire time you're researching. But the other thing he said that I thought was interesting in a book like George III is what he wants to do first is construct all of the action. So the timeline of somebody's Mm -hmm. life, what are they doing and what is happening around them? And once you have that in your notes, then you branch out almost like a tree into, okay, so he made this decision on this day and I'm going to connect that with these other nine or 10 items that I've researched on other people's diaries, other people's correspondences, history books to flesh out and make this a living breathing scenario. And once you've done that, then you go back through each chapter, and you leave little cliffhangers on the end of the chapter to make sure that people understand that the future is not knowable in real time. And I thought that was just really a fascinating description of what he's trying to do. And you certainly see that in George III. That's, that's totally how he writes this book.
1: Well, and a couple other things I'd tease you with in case you want to dive into this is, first of all, George III is interesting. We don't think about this, but he was the first monarch in quite some time who grew up in Britain and didn't speak German as his native language. So it's an interesting time in history in the late 1700s. The second thing that I really picked up out of this is I'm going to exaggerate here. Think about what you know of Henry VIII. You have a king of England who is literally the absolute monarch. Think about today. You have a Queen of England who has very little authority over what happens in the the country. George III is living literally as that transition is happening. Mm -hmm. He is, as you go through this book as a side effect, you begin to realize, hey, he's king and he has a lot of authority, but not like Henry VIII had parliament is getting more and more authority. And he's at the cusp of that change in British politics. And I didn't expect that, but that was a delightful realization to see how that happened.
0: Well, I put in my post that uh, I saw that Andrew Roberts is working on another book on Lord Northcliffe And that there's no reason to believe that that book won't end up on my best of 2022 books. I'm pretty much a homer for whatever he writes, but this one really was an interesting book. Um, What are what are a couple of your other top
1: picks? Well, in the diaries category, I read the journals of John Wesley. Not every single one, but quite a few, and there are a ton. I read George Whitfield's diaries, far fewer. Uh, I read Abraham Lincoln's notebooks. He kept notebooks, and they're not all diaries per se. Some of them are letters and observations and that kind of thing, and that was really interesting. Jock Colville, whom you know, was uh, he wrote his personal diaries, which he wasn't supposed to keep one, by the way. He was Winston Churchill's private secretary, like right-hand guy, during World War II. He was not supposed to be keeping a private diary, but he did and it's called Fringes of Power, and it's the Diaries of Jock Colville. Colville started out not liking Churchill, and then became his private secretary, and it is an interesting insight into that time period. But the one I would pick, uh, there are two. One is Come Be My Light by Mother Teresa. This was published after her death, and these are her private letters to her confessor, and it's just a real insight into this woman's life. But my pick of this, if you're interested in uh, Thomas Jefferson and history, and I know you've read this too, is Thomas Jefferson's literary commonplace book. So I know you're a fan of commonplace books. Do you want to explain what that is? And then I'll I'll, uh, talk about how Jefferson used it.
0: Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot written right now on these commonplace books, and they're kind of personal in the sense that everybody Treats them a little bit differently, but essentially you have a pocket notebook and you're writing down thoughts, quotes, um, ideas, and things that stick out to you. And most of the time they make their way into somebody's written work or speaking or some kind of output. But essentially, you can go back and see the seedbed of a lot of famous people's ideas in these commonplace books. And I've read a couple of different things on this, whether they started out among legal scholars, so they would write down certain laws so that they could review them and remember them, uh, or that they essentially start out as pocket notepads. So if you needed to write down anything, you would just take out your notebook and scrawl down whatever it was you wanted to remember. I think most people in my experience use them to remember or to mark down certain quotes, statistics, illustrations, stories. And that's definitely the most interesting version of these to read. If you're gonna read somebody's commonplace book, you hope that it's all the things that they find interesting.
1: And that's exactly what this is. Jefferson had several commonplace books. He was a lawyer, and so he had a commonplace books where he would write down, like you said, laws, cases, uh, things he wanted to remember. This is his literary commonplace book, and he dated this throughout his life. And it is a collection of sometimes very long quotes, but quotes. Let me give you an example. His father died when he was a relatively young man, and. Shortly after that, you see all these quotes from Cicero and Stoic philosophy, and you can tell that he was reading this as a way of coping, you know, with his father's death. Uh, You'll see a number of quotes from Euripides, the Greek poet in Greek, uh, in his commonplace book. You'll see a number of contemporary philosophers in his commonplace book, but you're absolutely right. So I would recommend this. It's a little nerdy. But his literary commonplace book gave you an insight into the things that really stuck with him. That was probably one of the most pleasant, just enjoyable books that I read. It's like an insight into someone else's head and what they've been reading.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I love stuff like that. And, and when you can find somebody that you kind of um, gel with and you're just leafing through and seeing kind of the train of their thought, what they find interesting... Uh, That's commonplace books like that are really, really fun to dive into. I have two picks that are on the more uh, political or policy side of things. The first one is a book called San Francisco and it's by Michael Schellenberger. So Schellenberger is a journalist. He is a progressive, used to be a ultra progressive activist and has been a climate activist for a long time. His book, Apocalypse Never was a kind of game changer for um, climate science and the narrative surrounding climate science, especially climate Mm -hmm. uh, change as a religion. But his book, San Francisco, is subtitled Why Progressives Ruin Cities. And I thought this is just too intriguing not to follow. (laughs) And I actually first heard him on the interview with Hugh Hewitt. And I, I think Hugh Hewitt is a great interviewer. And uh, otherwise, I would not have bought this book because I just wasn't interested in the topic. Um, but what what he does in the book is he goes through and he talks about why is it that progressives are running almost all of the big cities in America? And these big cities are getting worse and worse and worse. The more money you throw into these cities, the worse it seems like things get. And the problems that he focuses on are homelessness and crime in california's big cities so in san francisco Hmm. la san diego and the the juxtaposition in san francisco is is probably the most stark you have some of the richest companies in the history of the world and you have the worst homelessness and drug abuse problem in the united states there were some statistics in this book that really blew me away 50 percent of the homeless population in america lives in california and that population is getting bigger. So the population of homeless people, chronically homeless people in California actually grew by 20% while in the rest of the United States, it went down 19% over the last decade. So there's a, there is a 20%. chronic and acute problem in these progressive cities. And the book is essentially an explanation as to why this is. And what I love about the book is it is a little bit data dense. I mean, this is a book that you read that you're going to encounter a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics. However, what I like about Schellenberger is he's able to dig down to the ideas that explain why people are doing what they're doing. So for example, why do you have DAs in progressive cities that won't enforce the laws? Why do you have DAs that won't enforce things like shoplifting, uh, public intoxication. Why do you have uh, DAs in in these cities that basically campaign on allowing people to use narcotics in their cities? Well, that's this, a question makes, a lot of us have. It, it makes no sense unless you understand what the motivating worldview is behind these progressives. And he puts it really well. He th- he thinks that one of the reasons is the whole victim mentality. And I I love, this is in the introduction. He explains what he means by treating people as victims. He said, but let's ask a question that progressives ask. What if it is a form of victimization to try to influence people's behavior at all? The governing majority in some of America's cities seems to believe that the only real public policy problem is how to pay for letting people do whatever they want from turning public parks into open-air drug encampments, to using sidewalks as toilets, to handing over whole neighborhoods to people who are heavily armed and purposefully unaccountable. I really think that is, at root, one of the worldview positions of progressives today. So he goes through and explores the data, the stories. He covers a lot Mm -hmm. of really interesting things. I did not know much about Harvey Milk, who's a major character in this Willie Brown, Jim Jones, you get a lot of history in this book. And and I thought that was really good. I'll end with this though. I thought in terms of a Christian worldview, this really struck me. He starts talking about shame and he tells this story about a guy that he knows who's addicted to fentanyl. He's living on the streets of San Francisco, which is a very prevalent thing compared to what I expected. There are a lot of people, comparatively speaking, who have left their homes, their jobs, their families, gone to these open-air drug encampments, which is what Schellenberger thinks that homelessness is a euphemism for. He doesn't think we actually have a homelessness problem. We have a drug and an unmedicated mental health problem. But anyway, these people leave. They're addicted to fentanyl. They're otherwise relatively healthy people. And he asked the question about one of these people. Why is it that this person isn't ashamed to be doing what they're doing? And he says shame actually is essential to enforcing social norms from picking up after your dog to not being intoxicated in public to not sleeping on sidewalks with your personal belongings strewn around. Many would say that this person should not feel shame because he is homeless and by definition a victim. But just as people who can't feel pain accidentally injure themselves, this person will suffer mentally and socially if he isn't allowed to feel shame. The function of shame is to prevent us from damaging our social relationships and to motivate us to repair them. And he points out that progressives actually do believe in shame but they wanted to point a different direction than most people do. So anyway, I can I not go into the whole book, but as you can tell, it's a really fascinating policy look at what's going on in, in these big cities and a good explanation for why the absolutely bizarre things that you hear going on on the West Coast um, get people elected and uh, seem to be continuing. The other one, right. uh, I'll just be brief here, is Chaos Under Heaven by Josh Rogan. And it is a it is an exploration of the United States policy on China, beginning with uh, the end of the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, and into the Biden administration. And in a lot of ways, this is kind of an alarm bell book about what right. we've been doing with regard to China, how the narrative is changing with regards to China, and uh, what China has been doing. And there's, there's a lot of really eye-opening. Stuff in this book, but I think um, I included this in my post. There's a few books I think everybody should read on China. This one is definitely at the top of the list. I would put H.R. McMaster's Battlegrounds also on that list. Um, Kissinger's On China is a classic that I think everybody needs to know, but this one is the most accessible read about China today. And if you want to know what the Trump administration really did with regard to China and uh, what's going on over there,
1: this is definitely the book to read. I agree. I I read that too, and I found it to be very nonpartisan. It addressed the issue, and it really didn't have uh, a vested interest in which administration it was talking about. I mean, he had an opinion about what worked, what didn't work, but this wasn't a pro-Trump or pro-Obama book. It was all about what's working with China, what's not working with China.
0: Right. Well, Rogan is a. I should have mentioned this. Rogan is a journalist for the Washington Post. Uh, Not exactly a pro-Trump publication. And I think most of the work is done it couched from the same mindset that he writes his articles at the Washington Post. It's it's good journalism, it's objective. The narrative does go against the narrative that he paints in the book goes against some narratives that you'll find on the left and on the right. Uh, But he's really trying to explore what's going on uh, geopolitically with China.
1: Well as long as we're on the more popular subjects, I'm going to give you one of my top picks of the year Uh, When I did a series this year on racial unity and the portion of that on critical race theory, I read a lot of books on critical race theory across the spectrum. But if you only read one book on critical race theory, it should be Fault Lines by Vodi Baucham. Vodi Baucham, B-A-U-C-H-A-M. And the book is titled, uh, you wouldn't know it was necessarily about critical race theory, but it's called Fault Lines. And it's really an analysis of the church dealing with critical race theory and the culture. But I'll tell you what I like about it. Bauckham is a solid, a biblically-minded guy, as you will meet. And so he comes at it with a very biblical worldview. But add to that, he is one of the best researchers out there. This is not data-dense, as in it's just tables of data, but he is very fact-based. He's using all kinds of studies and he doesn't come across as biased. He comes across as exploring this subject. The single best book, if you really want data, not just someone trying to spin a story to convince you of something, is Fody Bauckham's Fault Lines. I think you read that too. Did you get the same thing? Yeah, from I it? loved that book, and I, I too was
0: surprised by the amount of primary source research and sociological research that he did in that book. That was really helpful really impressive in fact that podcast that we did on fault lines is in our top 5 most listened to podcasts of 2021 and I, and i'm not surprised by that because i think that book is so insightful i think barkham is so good on the biblical text some people really consider him a fundamentalist but as you read that book you realize he is just moving through what he's experienced having been um a racial activist in his youth, moving into the church, trying to figure out why you have the rivalries and um, discord racially within the church, and then looking at what's happening in our culture. And he weaves that all together in this book to give us a biblical picture of justice. And I think that's an indispensable book for uh, pastors, for church people, for anybody trying to understand the relationship between church, CRT, race, what we should be doing about it.
1: Well, and you're right, the first part of the book, the first chapter, if I recall, is his personal story and it's worth reading. It's it's really well done. The rest of the book is a lot of data. And like you say, he's he's reading primary sources. One thing I would recommend to people is that, and I'm not saying that you should get books just to put them on your shelf, but this book also could serve a little bit as a reference book. And by that, I mean, you don't necessarily have to read every word of this book to find it useful, because if you get to the point where you say, I'd like to know a little more about this, reading a chapter or two of this will refresh you with a lot of data. I know another book I use that way uh, when I did my sexuality series, and this is an older book, is uh, by Robert Yarhouse, uh, doctor of psychology, Christian, but this book isn't particularly about Christianity. It's called Homosexuality in the Christian. And I read the book, but I kept the book and continued to dog ear it because he quotes so many studies, uh, non-Christian. I mean, it's just psychological studies. And I have used it a little bit as a reference book from time to time where I'll go back and reread a chapter to refresh my mind on certain data that I want to have. Because I want to argue with data, not just polemics. Uh, Do you ever use books like that in that way? Yeah, one of the things I
0: noticed this year was going back to more of those reference style books. Uh, We did a little segment not too long ago about what books to keep handy. If you had to pick three or four to keep by the side of your desk for lesson prep and for research and that kind of thing, what would you keep? And um, I've certainly used several of those frequently this year. The one that was fairly new to me this year but has been just an indispensable book for preaching and teaching was G.K. Beal's commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, he's the editor of that book with D.A. Carson, and he's written several of the articles in there. But oftentimes, you'll have somebody that's written a pretty prominent commentary on a New Testament book, go through and discuss all of the Old Testament reference in that book. And so you can go through first Corinthians say, and every time Paul references or alludes to the old Testament, they explain that reference. And I found that to be just an incredible way to tie the whole Bible together. See how the scripture writers and authors are using scripture, how they're interpreting scripture, how themes of the Bible are running through the entire thing. I thought that was a really um, frequently useful reference book for me this year.
1: Well, lest you think I didn't read anything Christian this year, I have two books that are not new, but they were new to me when I kind of really dove into the Psalms this year. And one was by C.S. Lewis called Reflections on the Psalms. And that was a little gem that I had never read before. And C.S. Lewis, as you would expect, has a lot of really good insights that resonated with me. The second was by Eugene Peterson called Answering God, and it was very Eugene Peterson-esque, which I happen to like, and his insights were ones I don't usually have. So Reflections on the Psalms by C.S. Lewis and Answering God by Eugene Peterson were probably the top two out of the whole group that I read on the Psalms, barring commentaries. These are more, uh, they're not specific commentaries on each Psalm, but those two were really good.
0: Yeah, I preached through the Psalms this summer as as a lot of people do. And one of the new resources that was really helpful to me was Bruce Waltke's three-volume work on the Psalms. So he has The Psalms as Christian Worship and The Psalms as Christian Lament, and now I can't remember the the third volume, but each each one is kind of an overview of a certain genre of Psalms and then he picks certain exemplary Psalms to deal with. and, and that was really helpful for me this year. Uh, As far as Christian books go, I'll jump off of your Eugene Peterson pick because I thought A Burning in My Bones, which is the biography of Eugene Peterson by Wynn Collier, was really good. And it's kind of a unique pick on my list this year because I would say there are definitely parts of that book I did not like. And there there were some stylistic parts of it that I did not like. I wrote this in my review of the book. There were times when I felt like Collier was trying to tell a story that he had in mind and fit Eugene Peterson into it, you know, towards the end of his life, Eugene Peterson kind of became a pawn in some of these social issue debates because of his his interview with Jonathan Merritt and uh, because of the way that he was perceived. And then you get the family involved. Uh, Collier obviously spent a lot of time with Peterson. So on the one hand, I don't want to say that I know Peterson better than Collier does. He certainly spent a lot of time with him. But there were a few places where it was so drastically different in tone and in focus than Peterson's own memoir, The Pastor, that it felt a little bit like he was boxing Peterson in. Now, this will tell you how great parts of this book are. Despite that, it was one of the best books I read this year. Collier is a great writer. Eugene Peterson just has such a phenomenal story. When I got done with that book, I really just went back and picked up old Eugene Peterson books. And I think Uh that's a tribute to how well he captures certain parts of who Eugene Peterson is. But that book is really one that is hard to put down. I haven't talked to anybody who's read that book who um, stopped in the middle. Every single person was like, I could not put it down to finish this book. Uh, Another one that I'll mention, I've mentioned a couple of times this year, is Small Preaching by Jonathan Pennington. It's a very short book. It's 25 tips on preaching and teaching. And these are mechanic type tips to become a better teacher. So this is as simple as how do you structure the very beginning, first minute and last minute? How do you make sure that you're hitting consistent singles, you know, across 10 years of ministry to build your people up? How do you conceive of your entire sermon as a story so that you are moving in a narrative arc through the material? I thought that was a great book. Um, probably the best Christian book I read this year is not a new book, and it's one that I had read before, but it's John Piper's Expository Exaltation. And when I moved out to Carlton Landing and began to preach every week, I really wanted to go back and um, read a couple of the standbys that I had read on preaching, get back into the rhythm and um, heart get my heart ready to preach every week. And this is simply, in my opinion, the best overall book on Christian preaching. And the title explains why. It is expository all the way down. We are interpreting the text. We are heralds of what the text says. So so part of the book is trying, to get and honing our skills to get what the text says all the way down to the very bottom, which I think Piper is so good at. And then the second half is exaltation. So that is the worshipful and magnifying God discipline of preaching. So when you are expounding the text, you're worshiping. And when you're up in front of people bringing the text, you're worshiping. And so that expository exaltation, that's a book that I've returned to a couple of times, probably my best Christian read of the year. Getting into the text, but also the demeanor of preaching—that's that's that's my pick.
1: Outstanding. Well, uh, I have obviously a lot more we could talk about, but I think we've hit several. But let me turn this around on you, because I was just thinking today as I I had a little bit of time at thirty minutes and filled it with reading today, and I thought to myself, "Hey, this is the first book of twenty twenty two that I have started." So. What is the first book of 2022 that you have started?
0: Well, I actually just got an Amazon delivery today, and I'm very excited to get into some of those. But the first books I started in 2022 were sci-fi books. This was a new thing for me in 2021. I really got into several sci-fi series. And uh, it's probably because of two factors. The first one being there's a resurgence in remakes of old sci-fi right now in our pop culture. So you have Dune, which I thought was a great movie, but I read the book before I saw the movie, thought it was really interesting. So one of my first books in 2022 was to start the second Dune book, Dune Messiah. Um, Foundation is being made as a series on Apple TV right now. And uh, so I went back and started reading the, the original Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy. So I read the first one, one of the second ones, or one of the first books in 2022 was starting the second one, Foundation and Empire. And what I've been really drawn to, the other factor is I've noticed that we as a culture are having an imagination crisis. Part of the problem with trying to react to everything that's going on right now is that we don't have a very cohesive um, cultural imagination. We are very reactive. We are not very forward thinking. We are not very imaginative in the possibilities of what people are like and what might happen. I don't think we understand evil very well right now. I think we're in such, such denial over base evil and we're projecting our political enemies as being what evil looks like that we are unknowingly allowing real evil to slip through the cracks. And all of this is something that actually that sci-fi is really concerned with. I'll tell you one of the things that really turned me on to this. I was watching an interview with George Lucas, who is the creator of star Wars. And in the interview, somebody's asking him, how did you get started on star Wars? And George Lucas is a nerd. Like if you have ever seen anything with him, you realize he is a nerd. He's the perfect person to write sci-fi, but He actually didn't write Star Wars because he wanted to write sci-fi. One of the things he said in the interview was he wrote Star Wars because he wanted to tell a story about fathers and sons. And he just so happened to do it as a space opera because that's what he was currently into. He wanted to build those kinds of sets. He wanted to talk about that kind of technology. That just happened to be the kind of thing that he was into when he wanted to tell that particular kind of story. And my argument would be that sci-fi, not that other genres don't do this, but sci-fi has a unique ability to talk about the human condition or to talk about social phenomena through the lens of technology and through science that is really helpful in thinking about the future. So for example, one of the first sci-fi books I read this year was called Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. And that's the book, it was written in the 90s, that's the book where the term metaverse was coined. And it's a book basically about a metaverse and what happens there and what happens when you have a society of people who are so bored with their normal lives, that they project all of their worth and identity into a digital world with avatars that are really different than their their real world existence. So anyway, what what I was doing by reading these is looking at these themes. So for example, in Dune, the theme is religion. How does religion influence people in a multi-civilization empire? So we might translate it into saying something like, what does fanatical religion do in a multinational global society? That's a very pertinent question right now. Dune right. is really trying to grapple with that. The movie, not as much as the books, but the books have a very strong Muslim theme that runs through it. Everything is really couched in the language and culture of Islam. Uh, Foundation is similar. Foundation is also wondering what happens when an empire starts to die. And when you break up an empire and you lose some of your common knowledge, who begins to rise to the top? Scientists, traders, religious leaders, uh, the ruthless pragmatists. Anyway, all of these books, I think, are going to be helpful in thinking about the future of our world. And I'm convinced we don't have very good science fiction writing right now. But I say that as somebody who's fairly new to the genre. But anyway, those were my first ones of 2022. And I have several books to go in each of these series. I've started diving into H.G. Wells. He, uh, a fun fact about him he was one of Churchill's favorite authors. And mm-hmm. Churchill actually put into practice some of the things that he learned reading H.G. Wells in World War II, because he was so forward thinking. And so my question is, who is playing that role in our society today? And I really don't know. I'm looking for those kinds of people, but I really don't know who that might be. Um, And if you have a suggestion, obviously email us, because I'd love to know. But anyway, um, Neil Stevenson has a new book out, and I'm going to start it uh, this month. It's called Termination Shock, It's about climate change, which I'm not thrilled about. But I think it will be a good one because he has such a great track record. So anyway, those are my first books of 2022. What was your first read of 2022?
1: Well, I have a novel going uh, right now, a Daniel Silva novel going. But the first uh, book I started this year arrived this morning at my office just in time for me to spend half an hour. And it is Providence by John Piper. And I have really been thinking a lot about sovereignty and really more accurately, providence. And there's a little difference between sovereignty of God and the providence of God. But I've really been thinking about that in the past year. And it's shaped some of my thinking about events and social issues. And so that showed up this morning. I started reading it. It is a tome. I will tell Mm -hmm. you that is if you aren't going to read it, you could use it as a doorstop, but uh, I will keep you updated because so far the first few chapters have me enthralled with that book. Mm -hmm. It is just timely for me. So uh, I just want to point out mine's far holier than yours. So yeah,
0: definitely holier. Well, to wrap (laughs) up, I always, I always like to ask whether it's us doing this episode each year or just somebody that you're talking to about what they read or what they're into Give me the book or area of reading this year that you don't expect anybody else to like. It may not be popular. It may be kind of a niche area or book, but you really enjoyed reading it. Um, so this is the the non-PR, non-popular pick, deep track. What What is
1: yours this year? This is very uh, niche type book. And I discovered Michael Dobbs this year, and he's done a lot of different things, but he actually, he's written some novels, but I read two of his books of history, and one of them is called One Minute to Midnight, and it is a book about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, And so you think in the early 60s, we were literally on the brink of nuclear war. And this book is just really well done, goes inside the Soviet Union, goes inside the White House, and gives you just a very compressed view of what happened then. And I don't expect many people to be interested in that. I was very young, believe it or not, in the early 60s, but (laughs) I was alive and I was living on an Air Force base and we were very near the Minuteman nuclear missiles because that's what my dad did, he serviced those. And so we lived near nuclear missile launch sites. And we knew, I mean, when I went to school, I was probably kindergarten at this time, but I, when I went to school, we would have drills, which I now realize were worthless because we were all gonna be dust. <laughs> and we knew we—you were going; these bases were going to be nuked. And I remember my parents feeling their nervousness, not panic, But seriously, we were very close to a nuclear war in uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. So for me, that was a really great read. Mm -hmm. I really liked his book,
0: King Richard. That was one of my picks of the year. Read that too, and it
1: is very well done.
0: It's on the Watergate scandal. And I wrote about that one, but didn't didn't bring it up in this. But I would say for my picks, this one isn't so far off the beaten path. And I think people are going to be really... Surprised to hear this, but there's a Churchill book this year that was really good. And it was called Churchill Master and Commander by a guy named, a historian named Anthony Tucker Jones. And uh, the thing I really liked about it is this is a book that looks only at Churchill's military strategic career. So mm. as a soldier, as an officer, as a politician overseeing military strategy, what kind of strategist was Churchill? And he gets down into the very nitty gritty decisions that he was making, how he interfaced with different generals, was his strategy a success, i.e. in the Dardanelles campaign or Gallipoli or in, um, right. you know, torpedoing the French fleet or all the decisions that he makes militarily. That was a great book. One that is very much off the beaten path. There's a Yale University Press book called Going to Church in Medieval England, by a professor named Nicholas Orm that I thought was really fascinating. And the reason I picked it up was because of my current setting in Carleton Landing. You know, we only have one church in Carleton Landing. And in some ways, we are reverting back to a kind of parish, a medieval parish model, where the city itself actually functions um, as a place where your ministry is defined by who lives there. Um, whereas if you live in right. Oklahoma city, your ministry is defined a little bit differently who comes to your church or whatever. So anyway, there's a, there's a little bit of a throwback feel to what this church and this pastor, looks like. And I thought that book was really a fascinating look at how the church and the city and public life were all fused together in the medieval world. So that's one I don't expect anybody else to read or like, but I really enjoyed it.
1: I'll, have to give you the nod on that one. That is definitely a itch book, but it sounds fascinating. Now that you say it, I think I need to pick it up and read it.
0: Well, I always enjoy these uh, book recommendations and we enjoy hearing from you. So whether it be on social media or by email info at so we speak.com, send us your picks of the year, send us books uh, that you recommend. Some of the ones that we've mentioned here were recommended first by somebody else to us. We always enjoy hearing from you and, um, we hope that you love these books as much as we do, especially our top picks. But that's one of the fun things about reading is everybody is different, everybody has different experiences with different books. And so happy reading for 2022. We will see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review email us tell us what you like about it tell us what you'd improve about it thanks to all you guys who are listening and we'll see you next week on the so we speak podcast